My name is Jane Potter, and I'm Senior Lecturer in Publishing at the Oxford International Centre for Publishing Studies at Oxford Brookes University. And today I'd like to talk to you about the popular fiction of the First World War. We're all familiar with the poetry of Wilfred Owen, Siegfried Sassoon, Isaac Rosenberg, Ivor Gurney, and the memoirs of Edmund Blunden, Robert Graves, Vera Britton, all of whom were also poets, and novels such as the Tetralogy Parade's End by Ford Maddox Ford, we're probably also familiar with the patriotic and much maligned poems of Wilfred Owen's friend, who he addressed in his poem Dulce et Decorum Est, that certain poetess, Jessie Pope. But there was a larger body of popular literature, now mainly forgotten, the sheer volume of which indicates that however much we might prioritize the soldier poets, male and female memoirists, and modernist writers, the reading public at the time was consuming a far wider range of literature, particularly during the war years themselves. And it, this, this, it is this that I want to speak about today and argue for a more nuanced assessment of its importance. Books played an essential role in the First World War, perhaps more so than any during any conflict before or since. The book trade in Britain was in its golden age. Technical innovations, marketing strategies, and advertising strategies, as well as distribution networks, were firmly in place. Literacy levels were higher than they had ever been thanks to the increasing um, school provision made possible by the various education acts since the 1870s. With little competition from other media, books were an important source of distraction from the hardships of war. The demand for books far from being diminished by the conflict, as the publishing trade initially feared, actually intensified. Those on active service, whether in the trenches or convalescing in hospital, as well as those on the home front, were a captive audience, and publishers enthusiastically responded to a seemingly limitless demand. One publisher, Herbert Jenkins, declared that he had personally received very many touching testimonies of gratitude from readers who wanted to forget things occasionally for an hour or so. Studies of war literature have generally overlooked the ways in which publishers and the book trade figured in its creation and dissemination, but the business of publishing operated alongside the business of propaganda. Various publishing houses were enlisted by the government um, and their agency Wellington House to provide their imprint on sponsored texts so that these texts would seem not part of an official campaign um, and thus be accepted more readily by readers in neutral countries than such as the United States. But publishers were also patriots themselves in varying degrees of stridency and there were those who questioned the war, but independently produced unofficial propaganda most readily in the popular novels that often, often reaped welcome financial rewards. Country, conscience, and commerce were thus inextricably linked between 1914 and 1918, and the book trade, as well as the authors that fed it, responded to and created public opinion. Books were a patriotic commodity. The hero of Joseph Hawking's novel All for a Scrap of Paper in 1915 tells us that literally tons of periodicals, novels, and other light literature have been forwarded to the troops, evidences of the fact that millions at home, although they were unable to fight, were anxious to help those who could. As physical objects, books became one of the comforts of home included in soldiers' parcels. 
Camp's Library, the War Library, and the YMCA all collected and distributed books for the troops, the sick, and the wounded. National Book Fortnight was instituted by publishers in 1915 in order to encourage public the public to use books for their own solace and instruction and to keep the fighting men well supplied. So books became a currency by which those at home might pay or recompense soldiers for their services. In other novels, characters comment on the act of reading itself, such as the heroine Mrs. Humphrey Ward's Missing, who tells his wife that soldiers, when they are not fighting the Bosch, sleep or read novels. In Oliver Hastings' V.C., 1916, by Escott Lynn, Archibald Harris, who, we're who we are told is a bookish young man, is found reading a small pocket edition of Walter Scott's Lady of the Lake as he smokes a cigarette in a break from sentry duty. The central character in Sapper's short story, Private Mayrick Company Idiot, attests to the popularity of Rudyard Kipling's work among soldiers. When the story opens, Mayrick is charged with being half a minute late for parade because he was reading Kipling and forgot the time. Later, in an attempt to demonstrate his courage and thus that he is not an idiot, he goes out to fix a telephone wire in no man's land and is killed, but with Kipling still ringing in his ears that it's ruined to run from a fight. These examples are particularly revealing about the various roles books, especially popular fiction, played in the Great War. People wanted more news, surely, and the plethora of first-hand accounts that were also published between 1914 and 1918, both as books and in periodicals, is testament to this. But the public also wanted relief from such news and reality. Novelists, both new and classic, were there to help. Characters and tropes with which the reading public was familiar from pre-war spy thrillers, detective novels, romance and sensation fiction, were easily adapted to wartime concerns and anxieties. For however much such literature has been dismissed for its ephemeral and light nature, and indeed often for its overt patriotism, expounding as it does the models of appropriate wartime behavior for men and for women, it was the very fact that it did respond to very real concerns and anxieties in a familiar format that made it so popular. The war was easily exploited as a backdrop to adventure or romance, its causes and sacrifices easily explained. Heroes, whether working-class Tommies or upper-class officers, do not shirk from action. Indeed, Tommy Atkins is often shown to have more grit than his social superiors. For Richard Chatterton, the eponymous hero of Ruby M. Ayres's novel of 1915, Donning the uniform of enlisted soldier turns this effete layabout into a man of action, who proves his mettle on the battlefield, being wounded not once but twice, and baroneting multiple Germans in no man's land, thus earning his VC. But if one is tempted to think of the effusive descriptions of Richard Chatterton's patriotic attentions and thrilling deeds of heroism that abound in this novel are the result of an unrealistic or over-emotional woman's pen, then one needs to think again. Male writers, including, including Joseph Hawking, F.S. Brereton, and Joseph Keating, were equally enthusiastic in depicting vivid scenes of what one might call a mad joy in fighting, particularly one that allowed for hand-to-hand -hand combat, personalizing what was becoming an, an increasingly impersonal war. 
Crucially in these novels, it is the wounded soldier that is lauded. In fact, a wounded soldier is more manly because he has been wounded. Blighty wounds would not just take the soldier home and permanently out of the war, but were a badge of honor. With the ever-increasing number of war wounded, it was essential that the attitudes to physical disability and disfigurement be refashioned, at least for those injured in war. Lost limbs, blinded eyes, wounds in a mentionable place, to quote Sassoon and his poem, The Glory of Women, were lauded. Wounds, which were increasingly visible in everyday life, became increasingly normalized in popular fiction. Take, for example, the heroine of Berta Ruck's short story, Infant in Arms, as she tries to convince her love interest, who lost his leg at Ypres, described merely as if he had misplaced it, that he is now, with one leg, more of a man than he was in his pre-war life as an aesthete who used his two legs merely to dance the tango at avant-garde parties. But underlying what we might find callous and even amusing in this assessment is a serious purpose. There was the imperative to convince maimed soldiers and the, woman, the women who would most likely be looking after them that the loss was worth something, that it was not a worthless sacrifice, and that the war had meaning. Thus, as Carol Acton has noted, romance narratives are part of a much larger discourse of war, one that was official and unofficial. Occasionally, reviewers of these novels would bemoan the presence of the war in light literature. For example, a scathing July 1915 TLS review of Douglas Sladen's novel His German Wife found the plot not only improbable, but tedious. Popular and prolific authors, nevertheless, wrote with vigor and enthusiasm for the war effort. Ayers quickly followed Richard Chatterton, V.C., with a sequel called The Long Lane to Happiness, also in 1915. And V.C. was a familiar part of any title in these novels. So along with Oliver Hastings, V.C., and Richard Chatterton, V.C., one could count on Sergeant Spud Tampson, V.C., Sam Briggs, V.C., even Cupid, V.C. The cover of Claude and Alice Askew's novel Nurse, for instance, provides the quintessential vision of the Red, Red Cross Angel, far removed from the reality of wartime nursing, as many memoirs have shown. But the VAD, or Red Cross nurse, was a frequent character in popular literature of the war. Lyrics of popular songs also made for evocative titles, in particular Tipperary, which spawned It's a Long Way by Minnie Harding Kelly and My Heart's Right There by Florence Barclay. The dire warnings of the invasion literature of the late 19th and early 20th centuries seemed to come true with the declaration of war in August 1914, and the German spy found his way into wartime novels such as The Spy in Black by J. Storer Clouston, Before the Wind by Janet Lang, and A Girl Munition Worker by Bessie Marchant. Like these, Good Old Anna by Marie Bellock Lowndes combined romance with intrigue and espionage. It emphasizes the romance in its dust jacket, which depicts a beautiful young woman in a flowing white bridal gown and veil, clasping in one hand a large bouquet of flowers, and in the other, the hand of a man propped up in a hospital bed. They gaze intently into each other's eyes, observed by a benevolent-looking cleric. But Lowndes's novel is more than just a love story, and it's not just a spy thriller with comic interludes. 
but an indictment of innuendo and prejudice as these are visited tragically upon the title character Anna Bauer, a German housekeeper. Lowndes was one of a number of novelists whose work did not simply entertain or reinforce patriotic values, but succeeded in raising questions about human character which are not easily answered and the moral dilemmas that are timeless and universal. So why it is clear that novelists took great pains to cast the war in its most heroic and necessary light, they were not unaware of the task or the imperative to reflect and interpret society as it was lived. And crucially, romance and spy novels sold well into the war years. Sales of Richard Chatterton, for instance, actually increased post-1916 and the so-called watershed of the Somme, with 19,000 copies printed in 1917 and a staggering 34,750 in 1918. Joseph Hawking's wartime books were similarly popular. The dust jacket of his bestseller Tommy, which was then in its 80,000th impression, proclaims that Dearer Than Life, his fine patriotic romance, and All for a Scrap of Paper, which I quoted from earlier, each had print runs of over 43,000. And Jessica Meyer has cataloged the sales of Sapper's wartime books from 1916 through 1926, Men, Women, and Guns, in which pirate, Private Mayrick Company Idiot featured, sold 12,356 copies in, 1916, in 1917 and over 86,000 copies in 1918. The popular fiction that, was appe that appealed to or was thrust upon serving soldiers as well as non-competents raises important issues about the needs of a wartime readership. The sheer volume of such books indicates a desire for the reinforcement as well as the distraction that they offered. We must, of course, be careful not to assume that readers at the time couldn't see the hyperbole or the humor in the sentiments and caricatures of these stories. And evidence from diaries, letters, and books themselves stress this point. And as Edward Madigan points out in his lecture, The Better Part of Valor, soldiers used humor to cope with their experiences of war. Whether their function was to entertain or sustain, popular fiction of the kind I have highlighted only briefly here is as important as first-hand journalistic accounts, memoirs, and political commentary in creating and reflecting the public discourse of the Great War. In the early 21st century, with another world war, Vietnam, the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, the war on terror, and numerous other national and international conflicts, we find the sentiments expounded in these books misguided, irritating, even insulting. But the very volume of their published numbers indicates that they had something to say to those at the time. Books entertained and amused, informed and instructed. They shaped both competence and non-competence experience and interpretations of the Great War, and I would argue still have much to tell us about the generation of 1914 to 18 as we approach the centenary. <laughs>